Good evening. My name is Damien Grenfell, and on behalf of the Globalism Research Centre, I'd like to welcome you to uh, this very special event tonight. Firstly, we would like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of this land and the key contributors to dialogue in and about this place. The image on the slide behind me, the image used here by the Globalism Research Centre, comes from the work of South Australian Kokotha artist Daryl Fitznamilica as an expression of that vision of country. Acting Vice-Chancellor Professor Alcorn, Professor Held, Professor Haywood, RMIT colleagues, students and guests, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you all to the 2012 Tom Nairn Lecture. This annual lecture brings leading thinkers in the area of global studies to RMIT and is named in honour of our emeritus colleague, Professor Tom Nairn, who is a major thinker in studies of nationalism. A founder of the New Left Review and a regular contributor to public debates in open democracy and elsewhere, Tom was a professor in the Globalism Research Centre for, for nine years and has a way of quietly putting our intellectual enthusiasms in perspective. Tom sends his greetings tonight from his home in Scotland. I wish to acknowledge the support of the RMIT Foundation and the Global Cities Institute for generously supporting Professor Held's visit as an RMIT Foundation, Foundation International Visiting Fellow and the School of Global Studies, Social Science and Planning for tonight's event. I also would really like to thank Michelle Farley for doing an extraordinary job in terms of uh, not only organising and helping with the logistics for this event, but for all of, uh, of the visit by David uh, held to RMIT, and also to Peter Phipps, who's shown tremendous leadership in uh, being able to draw uh, David to RMIT and to participate in a wide range of uh, workshops, seminars and presentations uh, over a two-week period. I would now like to invite Acting Vice-Chancellor Professor Dane Alcorn to welcome you to RMIT. Thank you, Dr. Grenfell. Professor Held, distinguished guests, staff, students of RMIT University, and friends and colleagues. It gives me a great pleasure on behalf of uh, Professor Margaret Gardner AO, our Vice Chancellor, to welcome you all for the Globalism Research Centre 2012 Tom Nairn Lecture. The Tom Nairn Lecture series, bringing key thinkers of globalisation, nationalism and global, global urban transformations to RMIT University is an important part of the work of the university as an internationalised university with an urban orientation. We rank as one of the most internationalised universities in the world and are first in Australia for overall international student enrolments. The university's student population of over 74,000 includes over 30,000 international students of whom more than 17,000 are taught offshore. While RMIT has campuses in Melbourne and Vietnam, we also offer programs in many places and through partners, and including in Singapore, Hong Kong, man mainland China, Malaysia, India and Europe. But internationalisation is more than just about international students. We enjoy research and industry partnerships also on every continent. 
RMIT brings unique capabilities and solutions to research through an approach that considers both the technological and social dimensions of the work at hand. Research at RMIT is particularly focused on designing solutions to the critical global problems affecting communities and the environment. RMIT's vision for research is global, about urban and being connected. Our researchers partner with educational institutions, industry and community to work on creating solutions to very difficult problems. Professor Held's remarkable body of work has a concern with developing robust moral and practical frameworks for a rule-based global order and for dealing effectively with global collective action problems. In a time of so-called wicked global problems, ranging from climate change to new global health concerns to economic crises, um, such work matters enormously for advancing our shared horizons of possibility. For these reasons, I have great pleasure in commending this lecture to you and thank Professor Hill for the time that he's taken to work with staff and students at RMIT as an RMIT Foundation International Visiting Fellow. Thank you, Professor Hill. Thank you, Professor Alcorn. Tonight's lecture is but one of the more public activities for the Globalism Research Centre, a centre which celebrates its 10-year anniversary this year at RMIT. Over that period, the Globalism Research Centre has continued to change and adapt, but in doing so has never lost its commitment to producing research excellence by maintaining strong community engagement, by working collaboratively both within and beyond the university, and by never shifting its firm commitment to social justice. Tonight's Tom Nairn lecture follows on from an impressive series of lectures by serious global thinkers. In the past, these have included Tariq Ali, a leading British public intellectual and forceful critic of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, Saskia Sassen, the leading theorist of global cities who addressed the implications of the global financial crisis in its early stages, Mark Juergensmeyer on religion and violence in the global sphere, and last year, Leah Greenfield, who spoke on the, on the issue of nationalism and China. Tonight's lecturer stands with a small handful of the most influential thinkers in political theory and international relations alive today. Professor David Howard is Master of University College, Durham, and Professor of Politics and International Relations at Durham University. He's a British social and political theorist and a prominent figure within the field of international relations. He has been a key figure in the development of theories on cosmopolitanism and of cosmopolitan democracy in particular, and a leading scholar on issues of globalisation and global governance. Two decades ago, he co-founded Polity, which is now a major presence in social sciences and humanities publishing. And I think that I would speak for many people here when we think back to our undergraduate degrees and just the number of texts that were interspersed across those years that were authored and edited and, and produced both by David and through Polity Press. With Professor Held, he's shown, I think, also a remarkable generosity of spirit in his time at RMIT not only by taking time out from a new position at Durham to fulfil this visiting fellowship, or by flying the considerable distance from the UK to do so. 
but also by while being here, David has taken part in no less than eight formal seminars, lectures and dialogues with staff, students and early career researchers, as well as multiple informal meetings and discussions. I personally have attended a number of these and I need to say that all of them have been deeply inspiring. And I think that David will, uh, David's legacy of his short time here at RMIT will continue well into the future. It is with great pleasure that I ask you to welcome David Held for this lecture on cosmopolitanism in, in the multipolar world. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Um, I have some water here because I have a cr very croaky voice. So if you see me reach for it, you'll know why. First of all, thank you both for your very generous uh, words and your kind introduction. I I'd actually like to thank several people before I start. Um, I'd, also, I'd like to uh, thank uh, Dr. Peter Phipps, who has been tireless in his organization of this trip and has been an outstanding host. It's a standard that will be very hard to repeat when you get to England, but I'm deeply grateful to you for your generosity and support. I'd also like to thank Michelle Farley, wherever she is, if she's here, um, for all that she has done to make this visit possible and the administrative uh, support she has provided. And then, of course, I only am here by virtue of the Globalism Research Center, the Global Cities Institute, and the RMIT Foundation, and I would like to thank them all. I'd also like to toss in a thank you to Jeremy, who none of you know, but he works in the pharmacy opposite. He took pity on me this afternoon when I could hardly speak, but didn't have enough money to pay for some strepsils. And he gave them to me anyway at a considerable discount. So thank you, Jeremy. I promised I'd thank him, and here I am. So, cosmopolitanism in a multipolar world. I think this theme um, speaks to some very fundamental issues of our time and about the nature of the rule-based multilateral order we have had and will have in the future and the contest around the nature of multilateralism and a rule-based global order. So let me just start with some general remarks that I think are very important in situating what I mean by cosmopolitanism. A student said to me this morning, that many of his friends, when confronted by the idea of cosmopolitanism, simply said, well, it's not possible, it's all right as an idea, but can't exist in practice. And so the first point I want to make is it's not a philosophical idea or just a philosophical idea. It's already embedded in fundamental elements of human development in the multilateral order and, above all, in international law. So we start, as it were, with elements of a cosmopolitan order. Thinking about the future of humankind on the basis of the early years of the 21st century does not give grounds for immediate optimism. From 9-11 to the present day, terrorism, conflict, territorial struggle, and the clash of identities appear to define our era. The wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Israel, Lebanon, Libya, and elsewhere suggest that political violence is an irreducible feature of our age. Perversely, to continue this theme, globalization seems to have dramatized the significance of differences between peoples. Far from globalization of communications easing understanding and the translation of ideas, it often seems to highlight what it is that we don't have in common with others and might find disagreeable about others. Moreover, the contemporary drivers of political nationalism, self-determination, 
secure borders, geopolitical and geoeconomic advantage, place an emphasis on the pursuit of the national interest above concerns with what it is that humans might have in common. Yet, it is easy to overstate the moment and to exaggerate from one set of historical experiences. While each of the elements I've just mentioned does pose a challenge to a rule-based multilateral order, it is a profound mistake to forget that the 20th century established a series of cosmopolitan steps towards the limitation, the delimitation, of the nature and form of political community, sovereignty, and reasons of state. These steps were laid down after the First and Second World Wars that brought humanity to the edge of the abyss, not just once, but twice. At a time as difficult as the start of the 21st century, it's important to recall why these steps were taken and remind oneself of their profound significance. From the foundation of the UN system to the foundation of the European Union, from changes to the law of war to the entrenchment of human rights, from the emergence of international environmental regimes to the establishment of the International Criminal Court, people through these developments, through these initiatives, have sought to reframe, to reframe human activity and embed it in law, rights and responsibilities. Many of these developments were initiated against the background of formidable threats to human beings, above all Nazism, Fascism and Stalinism. And those involved in these developments affirmed the importance of universal principles, human rights and the rule of law in the face of enormous temptations to simply pull up the shutters and defend the position of only some countries and nations. These architects of the global order rejected the view of national and moral particularists that belonging to a given community limits and determines the moral worth of individuals and the nature of their freedom, and they defended the irreducible moral status of each and every person. At the center of such thinking, I suggest, is the cosmopolitan view that human well-being is not defined exclusively by geographical and cultural locations, that national, ethnic, or gendered boundaries should not determine the limits of rights or responsibilities for the satisfaction of basic human need, and that all human beings require equal moral respect and concern. These principles, in other words, of equal respect, of equal concern, and the priority of vital need are not principles for some remote utopia, for they are at the center of significant international legal developments, particularly since the end of the Second World War. It's getting croaky. A bit of oiling, excuse me. What does cosmopolitanism mean in this context? <clears throat> in the first instance, cosmopolitanism refers to those basic values that set down standards or boundaries that no agent whether a representative of a global body, state, or civil association should be able to violate. Focus on the claims of each person as an individual, these values espouse the idea that human beings are, in a fundamental sense, equal, and that they deserve equal political treatment. That is, treatment based upon the equal care and consideration of their agency, irrespective of the community in which they were born or brought up. 
Now, after 250 years of nationalism, sustained nation-state formation, and seemingly endless conflicts over territory and resources, these values may seem entirely out of place. But these values are, in fact, already enshrined in the law of war, in human rights law, in the statute of the ICC, among many other international rules and legal arrangements. Second, cosmopolitanism can be taken to refer to those forms of political regulation and lawmaking that create power, rights, and constraints that go beyond the claims of nation-states and have far-reaching consequences in principle for the nature and form of political power. <clears throat> These regulatory forms can be found in the domain between national and international law and regulation, the space between domestic law that regulates the relations between a state and its citizens and traditional international law which applies primarily to state and interstate relations. This space between the domestic and the international is already filled by a host of regulation from the legal instruments of the EU and the international human rights regime to the diverse arrangements of the arms control system and environmental regimes. Within Europe, the Convention for the Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms and other developments in the EU itself have created new institutions and layers of law and governments that have divided political authority. Any assumption in Europe that sovereignty is indivisible, illimitable, exclusive, perpetual form of power entrenched with an individual state is now simply defunct. I'm sorry about this. The body is willing even if the voice is croaky. <clears throat> Within the wider international community, rules governing war, weapon systems, war crimes, human rights and the environment, among other areas, have transformed the delimited order of states, embedding national polities in new forms and layers of accountability and governance. Accordingly, the boundaries between states, nations, and societies can no longer claim the deep legal and moral significance they once had in the era of classic sovereignty. In short, cosmopolitanism is not made up of political ideals for another age, but is embedded in rule systems and institutions and legal structures that have already altered state sovereignty in distinctive ways and in societies of diverse faiths. <clears throat> Cosmopolitanism involves two key elements, if I may abstract now a little. One moral and the other political. The moral explicates and defends the cosmopolitan idea that every human being has a global stature as the ultimate unit of moral concern. Moral cosmopolitanism translates this idea into the notion of the protection of fundamental common human rights into corresponding duties of global justice to uphold these rights and to reforming unjust institutions so they might better entrench cosmopolitan principles. This moral dimension can be related to but is distinct from institutional cosmopolitanism which focuses primarily on examining which institutions might best implement the normative considerations of its moral counterpart. Institutional cosmopolitanism holds that the world's political structures should be reshaped so that states and other political units are brought under the authority of elements of a global 
legal framework that upholds these fundamental principles. In most cases, an institutional focus is occupied with questions of how cosmopolitan principles can be embedded in practice and how current global systems are failing the ethical concerns of moral cosmopolitanism. One more abstraction. I take cosmopolitanism to mean the ethical and political space which sets out the terms of reference for the recognition of people's equal moral worth, their active agency, and what is required for their autonomy and development. Cosmopolitanism builds on principles that all could reasonably assent to and are deeply embedded, as I've suggested, in structures of international law. And it defends the basic ideas which emphasize equal dignity, equal respect, and so on. On the other hand, cosmopolitanism must also recognize that the meaning of these fundamental principles can't be specified once and for all. That is to say, the meaning of these basic ideas can't be separated from the hermeneutic, that's the interpretive complexity of traditions, with their temporal and cultural structures. The meaning of cosmopolitan principles cannot be set out independently, in other words, of an ongoing discussion in public life. Thus, there can be no adequate specification of the meaning of equal worth, equal liberty, and vital interests without a corresponding institutionalization of the public use of reason in uncoerced forms of dialogue and democracy. In short, cosmopolitan principles are the other side of a democratic public life. From the local to the global. More about that. I now want to turn <clears throat> to some challenges to cosmopolitan thinking, challenging to, challenges to this heritage, which are fundamental to where we are today. So, cosmopolitanism in a multipolar world. And the first challenge I want to focus on is this multipolar world. Until recently, the West has by and large determined the rules of the game on the global stage. During the last century, Western countries presided, that's the 20th century, over a dramatic shift in world power from direct control through empire and colony of territory to much more subtle control of the rules of the game, the creation of governance structures created particularly in the post-1945 era. From the United Nations Charter and the formation of the Bretton Woods institutions to the Rio Declaration of the Environment and the creation of the WTO, international agreements have invariably served to entrench a well-established international power structure. The division of the globe into powerful nation-states with distinctive sets of geopolitical interests and reflecting the international power structure as it was understood in 1945 was embedded in the articles and statutes of leading international government organizations. From the UN Security Council to the IMF and the World Bank, voting rights are distributed in relation to geopolitical clout and individual state financial contributions. In short, the universal values that were the achievement of a rule-based multilateral order of the UN system, of the UN Charter, of the laws of war, of the human rights regime, sit uncomfortably and splice together in the UN system itself with sovereign, powerful sovereign interests. And this is how it's been since 1945, with the UN flip-flopping 
over and over again between whether it's a champion of universal rights, of universal issues, of global public goods, or whether it is in fact the backyard for the playing out of geopolitical rivalry and geopolitical conflict. The result is all too familiar. The susceptibility of the UN and other major international organizations to the agendas of the most powerful states. The partiality in their enforcement operations, or lack of them, so yes to Libya, no to Syria, no to relieving Gaza. The continued dependency of international organizations on the financial support of a few major powers and weaknesses in the policing of global collective action problems. You wouldn't call a modern state a modern state unless it met two criteria. It had a universal system of franchise in partial representation and a system of taxation that embraced all. And yet at the UN, that's precisely what we haven't got. We've got a dominant system of representation that embeds the power of the most powerful countries. And the financial provisions of these institutions depends essentially on the contributions of the wealthy states. Hence, it is not a surprise that the UN budget is less than the New York Police Department. The UN budget is 4.4 billion or 4.3 billion, and the budget of the New York Police Department is just um, fractionally over that, telling us something about our priorities. This has then been the, the dom this has been dominance based on a club model of global governance and legitimacy. Policy at the international level has been routinely decided by a core set of powerful countries, above all the G1, as I call the United States, the G5 and the G7, with the rest largely excluded from decision-making processes. The reach of cosmopolitan values embedded in the system as an achievement has essentially been blunted by these narrow club concerns. Today, however, the picture is changing, but not necessarily in ways that will benefit the application of cosmopolitan aspirations. The trajectory of Western dominance has come to a clear halt with the failure of leading elements of Western policy in recent decades, the Washington Consensus, unilateralism, the actions of the coalition of the willing. In the case of the Washington Consensus, it is striking that the most successful economic that the most successful developing countries in the world were the ones that did not follow its prescriptions. In the case of peacemaking, it's quite striking that those settlements of peace which were most successful were the ones that did not follow the prescription of the coalition of the willing or unilateralism. The West can no longer rule through power or example alone. At the same time, Asia is clearly on the ascent over the last half century, East and Southeast Asia, as you all know, has more than doubled its share of world GDP and increased per capita income at an average growth rate of nearly three times that of the rest of the world. In the last two decades alone, emerging Asian economies have experienced an average growth rate of between 8 and 10 percent, three times the rate of the rich world. Simply put, we're seeing a fundamental rebalancing of the world economy with the center of gravity shifting rapidly to the east. And this has been given an enormous impetus by the global financial crisis, which has left huge debt hangovers in the United States and in many European countries, 
whilst many of the surplus countries of Asia have the flexibility to continue investment. The trajectory of change is towards a multipolar world where the West no longer holds a premium on geopolitical and geoeconomic power. Moreover, different discourses and concepts of governance have emerged to challenge the old Western orthodoxy of multilateralism and the post-war order. The newly emerging powers, the ascendant powers, particularly those in Asia, exhibit perhaps stronger allegiances to their national identities than to values of cosmopolitanism or liberal egalitarianism. National identity has historically been an effective mobilizing force for states, and it's unlikely to be surrendered under pressures of development. The furious criticism in China that followed from the recent Nobel Peace Prize Award is an indicator of the challenges to cosmopolitanism in a new multipolar world as the universal values of equal worth and dignity of human beings face the fervor of national identity and the imperatives of national development. In such a world, cosmopolitan values and aspirations may lose or risk losing whatever role they once had as trumps of sovereign interests. The second challenge I want to turn to now is that of the emergence of strong states and developing strong states. And I want to focus on the Gulf for a moment, which I've done some research on. So this is challenge two. If the first is multipolarity, the second is resurgent states. The multifaceted and dynamic participation of the Gulf states within processes of global change presents one perspective of the future of state sovereignty in a multipolar world. The Gulf states have acquired greater confidence and leverage in reshaping the global architecture, especially in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. They hold cash. The emergence, their emergence as global actors has injected a new dynamic into policy-making debates and methods of global engagement. Somewhat ironically, it can be noted that Western policy responses to the financial crisis bore considerable resemblance to the state-sponsored capitalism models that have long been followed in the Gulf and, of course, in East Asia. These highlight the continuing relevance of the state in the contemporary national system and suggest that new global realignments may still further strengthen the durability of the state-based system itself. The Gulf states have been largely left untouched by the global shift of recent decades, notwithstanding the Arab Spring, which after all, many of them have led a counter-revolution too, particularly in Bahrain. This modifies some significant generalizations in the social sciences that link globalization to the weakening or hollowing out of states. You can have your cake and eat it too. You can have globalization and stay a strong state. Older mechanisms of wealth distribution have remained intact as regimes have adapted pragmatically to the new opportunities to maximize their leverage and embedded themselves at the core of globalizing, in globalizing international community. The Gulf states' embrace of economic globalization and their resistance to its socio-political and cultural dimensions marks a further area of alignment with other emerging powers, notably China, perhaps even India. All these countries display an underlying skepticism of both cosmopolitan values and global governance as an intrusion into their sovereign leadership. Their preference is to view a rule-based multilateral order through the prism of state-led cooperation and to ensure the governance of globalization through interstate collaboration. 
This, of course, neither diminishes the complexity of global issues nor lessens the urgency of developing mechanisms for addressing them. Nonetheless, it helps highlight and it helps us understand the fractious proceedings of the 2009 United Nations Climate Conference in Copenhagen, where local, national, and global affiliations confused any discourse of coming to a settlement on climate change, where national interests and how they were understood trumped any agreement on a final climate agenda. From Doha, where trade discussions are stalled, financial market reform, where global discussions are stalled, to Copenhagen, and so on, and so on. The urgency of resolving global collective action problems has taken second place to the pursuit of raison d'etat of the great powers. In addition, the broadening and deepening of bilateral and multilateral trades ties between the Gulf states and African and Asian partners offers an alternative model of economic and political development and pathways of global enmeshment. Policymakers of the Gulf frequently cite the development state paradigm followed by East Asian countries and particularly Singapore as an inspirational model for their own development. The combination of state guidance with private interests in opening up economies while maintaining politically authoritarian structures runs counter to much academic discourse linking economic globalization and economic liberalization to political liberalization. The example of China, India, and East Asian tigers also provides instances of states managing their collective global enmeshment largely on their own terms and using their economic strength as leverage in the international arena. An emerging Gulf consensus concentrates on maximizing the practical benefits in globalization while staying at a complete distance from any normative participation in or adherence to cosmopolitan values and their priorities. Thus, strong versions of moral cosmopolitanism that defend egalitarian global justice at the expense of special obligations towards co-nationals, and even weaker versions that seek to ensure that human rights shape and limit sovereignty, risk marginalization. National and communal sentiments remain important and necessary conditions in establishing the motivations for and the reciprocal conditions of citizenship and social justice. Understood in this way, cosmopolitanism, with its focus on universal values and global governance, seems contrary to the sheer diversity of human cultures and to the wish of people everywhere, especially in developing communities, to allow those communities alone to determine their own future path. Cosmopolitanism, as David Miller puts it, may be in opposition to a form of nationalism that holds that we owe more to our fellow nationals than we owe to human beings, merely by virtue of the fact that we share common cultural and other features with them. So let me now move to the third challenge before I respond to them. It must be quite difficult to listen to me, is it? Is it quite tough? You can be honest. It's quite difficult for an academic to lose his or her, his or her voice because it is, after all, the medium of communication. But for those who are interested, I could also ensure that this talk is available on a relevant website here. Let me go to the third challenge and then respond to them. Thirdly, the third challenge I call the paradox of our times. These developments towards multipolarity, challenge one, and resurgent national states, 
challenge to take place in the context of what I call the paradox of our times. This refers to the fact that the collective issues we need to grapple with are increasingly defined by cross-border transnational forces. And yet the means for addressing these remain stubbornly tied to territory and place. While there are a variety of reasons for these problems, at root the question is one of governance. We face three core sets of problems. Those concerned with one, sharing our planet, climate change, biodiversity, ecosystem losses, water deficits. Two, those concerned with sustaining our humanity, poverty, conflict prevention, global infectious diseases, and so on. And finally, three, those concerned with developing our rule books, nuclear proliferation, toxic waste disposal, intellectual property rights, genetic research rules, trade rules, financial rules, tax rules. In our increasingly interconnected world, these global problems cannot be solved by any one nation state acting alone. They call for collective and collaborative action. And yet this is precisely something which we have not been good at, and yet we need to get much better at if these global issues are to be adequately tackled. Yet the evidence is wanting that we are getting better, better at building better, at building global governance capacity. And this for at least three reasons. The UN was founded in 1945 as an institution above all to meet the challenge of global peace. It was not designed to meet the challenge of this array of global collective action problems. Two, the governance capacity required to address these global action problems is simply not in the system as it exists. And three, because of multipolarity and resurgent state structures, there's a profound lack of consensus in each and every international fora as to how to proceed. I call this gridlock. That is to say, the stalemate in the international terrain on virtually every major issue requiring pressing international agreement. So let me now come to respond to this, these three challenges. At this point, I want to say something about them, what they tell us and what they don't. And I'd like to organize these remarks under the sort of the title, Disengagement or Inclusion. How are we doing for time? Do these new emerging states that I've described, these resurgent states, wish to disengage with the multilateral order? And do they wish to disengage from pressing global issues? The evidence to date does not, I think, point actually to a fundamental upheaval, despite what I've said. The 2008-9 global financial crisis has led to a moderate strengthening and expansioning of participation in global economic governance. Interestingly, the rising powers have chosen to join financial, trans, financial transgovernmental networks, not fight against them or ignore them. Indeed, the shift in economic power from the developed countries to emerging markets is arguably an important cause behind the innovation of mechanisms like the G20, pushing global governance away from the post-war narrow club concerns. And if anything, there's an awakening of the realization that the world can no longer be run by the G1, G5, G7, or G8. It's the foundation of the G20 itself. 
We might think for good reasons that current institutions, multilateral and transnational, are a product of Western hegemony. Certainly they reflect, as I've said, the interests of various Western actors, though these are often not homogenous. While we lack detailed empirical information, I think it's also fair to say that many of these institutions, whether treaty-based intergovernmental organizations, regulatory agencies, or multi-stakeholder partnerships, are more in, have more in common in a Western context with Western political approaches than they often do elsewhere. The pluralistic, non-state characteristics of many of the innovative transnational mechanisms share more intent common with certain kinds of political approaches commonly found in the West. To the extent that such governance mechanisms are based on certain Western practices, a decrease in Western power in global politics may herald a return to more traditional, formal, state-centered forms of global governance. Yet, it's a big yet, trans-border political institutions do sometimes outlast changes in power relations that underpin them. Bob Cohen argued in After Hegemony that global institutions created under the leadership of the United States after the Second World War persisted even after the United States declined in economic importance relative to Europe and Japan. While some institutions, such as the gold standard, did not survive the global economic dislocations of the 1970s, many did because newly arisen powers derived functional benefits from them. Of course, China, India, and other emerging economies are not the same as post-war Europe and Japan. However, the shift in economic power from developed countries, from developed countries to emerging markets is arguably the single most important cause behind innovative mechanisms like the G20. The informal network nature of organizations like the G20 may allow for more fluid adjustment of responsibilities and obligations than, for example, traditional institutions like the World Bank or the IMF. The G20, it can be argued, is not merely a reflection of the distribution of economic power globally or the realization of the shift in the distribution of economic power, but also, importantly, it's the clearest sign yet of the desire of Asia and other emerging regions to be part of the multilateral order on their terms and not to be excluded from it. It remains to be seen how and, and, and to what extent reforms begun in this way over the last few years can be reproduced and built in other areas. Nonetheless, a new space for global politics has emerged as a result of both the failures of old institutional structures and new political opportunities created after the global financial crash by a widely shared sense of urgency of finding new ways ahead. Let me now turn to some final thoughts. Established modes of national governance have the power to tax, subsidize, and provide public goods in ways designed to improve their societies, at least in principle. Much-needed methods of global governance, on the other hand, like the G20, raise new questions. What instruments and targets are legitimate ones to be considered in this world? What authority and legitimacy can be accorded to such systems so that they can successfully tackle problems emerging in a more modern global economy and polity. Today, the elusive fit between those who make decisions and those whose vital interests are affected by those decisions cannot be assumed to exist any longer at the level of the nation state for reasons that I've argued. 
In a world of complex interdependence, the actual prospects of people depend more than ever on forces that are external rather than internal to the nation state. Put simply, by concentrating on the state alone, irrespective of the circumstances in which the latter operates, there's a risk of focusing on the wrong level of governance and pursuing the wrong level of policy and values. The bottom line is that we need a framework of moral and political interaction in order to coexist and cooperate better in the resolution of our shared pressing problems. From ecological disasters to financial meltdown, there's no solution but to find a common way forward. If this is correct, then a cosmopolitan approach is not, as is sometimes argued by non-Western critics, a form of Western yearning for a form of ideological dominance or imperial control, the imposition of a certain set of Western values enshrined in the legal instruments I spoke of. But rather, it is better understood as a set of ideas and principles that can guide us towards the governance of the challenges we face, however difficult. It's a mistake not to build on the language of equal moral worth and self-determination because of its contingent associations with Western power. To paraphrase the legal theorist Bruce Ackerman, there is no nation in the world without a woman who yearns for equal rights, no society without a man who denies the need for deference, and no developing country without a person who does not wish for the minimum means of subsistence so they may go about their everyday lives. Cosmopolitan principles are building blocks for articulating and entrenching the equal liberty of all human beings wherever they are born and brought up. They are the basis of underwriting autonomy of others, not of obliterating. Their concern is with the irreducible moral status of each and every person, the acknowledgement of which links directly to the possibility of self-determination and the capacity to make independent choices. At the heart of such a conception is a conception of a global order, is self-determination and citizenship, no longer based just on territorial communities. Rather, the argument is that these principles, that self-determination and citizenship must be based on general rules and principles that can be entrenched and drawn upon in different settings. A citizen of Glasgow can vote in the city elections. The same person can vote in the Scottish elections. The same person can vote in the UK elections. The same person can vote in the European elections. Four overlapping forms of membership and community. And yet, is it too big a step to think also that the same person can also engage in wider global debates and considerations? The meaning of citizenship thus shifts for membership of a community which bestows for those who qualify particular rights and duties to an alternative principle of world order in which all persons have equivalent rights and duties in the cross-cutting spheres of decision-making that affect their vital needs and interests. There is only a historically contingent connection between the principles underpinning citizenship, citizenship and national community. And, it's con and as this connection weakens in the world in which we live in, in a more global world, the principles of citizenship need to be re-articulated and re-entrenched. It's important to stress, as I reach my conclusion, so don't worry, I'm going to go on too much longer, that cosmopolitan approaches do not deny the reality and, and ethical relevance of living in a world of diverse identities and diverse values. How could they? 
That's how we live. It does not assume that we can attain consensus on all practical political challenges. But the elaboration of cosmopolitan principles should be understood not as an exercise in seeking general and universal understanding on all substantive questions. Rather, a modern conception of cosmopolitanism should be understood in a more restrictive way. At stake is a more restrictive exercise aimed at reflecting on the moral status of persons, the conditions of their agency, and of collective decision-making. It's important to emphasize that this exercise is constructed on the assumption that ground rules for communication, dialogue, and dispute settlement are not only desirable, but essential, precisely because people are of equal moral value and their views on a wide range of matters will conflict. The principles of cosmopolitanism, then, are the conditions of taking cultural diversity seriously and of building a democratic culture from the local to the global to mediate clashes of the cultural good. They are, in short, about the prerequisites of just difference and democratic dialogue. The aim of modern cosmopolitanism, then, is the conceptualization and generation of the necessary background conditions for what John Rawls calls a common or basic structure of individual action and activity. If you haven't been listening, or you couldn't listen because my voice was too croaky, let me summarize it in 30 seconds. Everything I've said can be reduced to this. So, The 20th century set down cosmopolitan stepping stones, which created a path, in my judgment, to a universal constitutional order. This path was set down in the laws of war, in human rights law, which constrain in principle sovereignty and provide a set of principles that no agent should be permitted to cross. This is an achievement of the 20th century, a profound and fundamental achievement of the 20th century that we forget absolutely at our peril. In a multipolar world, a world of resurgent states, and a crisis in our governance capacity, the path across these stepping stones, the stepping stones of a universal constitutional order, is becoming increasingly difficult. Nonetheless, states and emerging powers have demanded inclusion in the multilateral order on fair and equal terms and have not sought to abandon it. In the context of the key failures of Western policy, what I call market fundamentalism and unilateralism, a political space is opened up to reforge the multilateral order on a more inclusive basis. As Hegel reminds us in the philosophy of right, the owl of Minerva spreads its wings only with the falling of dusk. We cannot yet know whether the multilateral order will be successfully reformed. The fact that there are powerful cosmopolitan arguments for this does not create any historical guarantees. But just as it took centuries to shape the modern state, its replacement by a deeper entrenchment of cosmopolitan principles cannot be reasonably be expected to take less time. But the trouble is that we may not have that much time as the global collective challenges, the global collective action problems we face, such as climate change, if unchecked, threaten to reshape the very conditions of human life. And there's the rub of the matter. Thank you.
Thank you, Professor Held. I'm hoping that uh, Professor Held's voice can hold up for uh, a couple more minutes in order to take, I'm sure that there are questions on the floor. So uh, if you've, could you put your hand up if you've got a, a question? Can I ask you that you keep it to a question, not a declaration? Uh, can you just wait for the... We've just got one here in the green shirt, so we've just got a microphone coming. If you can. Just... OK. Yeah, uh, David, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on the role of multinational corporations in shaping state policies, uh, perhaps even shaping the UN, shaping cosmopolitanism, and at the same time contributing to a bipolar world. Mm. Well, as you all know, multinationals today, many of them in terms of their command over resources and revenue dwarf the size of many countries. In the post-war period of the development of states after 1945, Corporations were largely bound, and their activity bound, to controls within states. Capital controls, for instance, were hugely important in limiting investment overseas and the rate at which companies could, over, could invest. But as the 1950s and 60s developed, growing numbers of multinationals, in the first instance American multinationals, were able to circumvent capital controls and create a flow, not just of global trade, but of global finance, which began to shape the agendas, the economic agendas of states. In 1979, when Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher liberalized global financial markets, the fact of the matter is they were just acknowledging what had already happened. The multilaterals of the 60s and 70s, the multinationals, sorry, of the 60s and 70s, had already escaped the borders of states. When the deregulation occurs in 1979-1980, the financial genie that was contained in the lantern, to some degree still, was released. And the question is now, can it be ever put back into the lantern of national control mechanisms? I doubt it. As a result, the only response can be to introduce new regulatory structures at a global level. Is this likely? Well, it's very problematic. But some efforts have been made. The attempt to create a global compact, which was Kofi Annan's initiative at the UN, was an attempt to lay down a set of universal principles that leading multinationals had to sign up to in order, as it were, to become legitimate players in the global marketplace. And many companies did sign up to these principles. But of course, for many, and I spoke to, uh, for example, L'Oreal about it, one of the world's leading cosmetic companies, this actually was a form of enhancing their global branding to show that not just that they were profitable, but they were caring global citizens. The difficulty is that the world economy has become precisely that, a world economy. But national regulatory structures remain precisely that, national regulatory structures. And therein lies the challenge that I was speaking about. This is exactly an exemplar, a case in point. I don't think businesses or corporations are against reform of markets. It's a question of the level, a level playing field. No companies want to take on the costs of certain social regulations or environmental costs if companies they're competing with, let's say in Asia, don't take on those costs as well. That alters the nature of the level playing field. 
So the way forward can only be to attach to world trading conditions the rules of the WTO, conditions concerned with global sustainability and other such considerations. In other words, to reframe the market. Markets are rule-based. The question now is which rules should govern these markets into the future. And we need a global political economy which rethinks the rule-based market order that embeds the actual costs of doing business into the structure of market costs themselves. And we don't have such a political economy. That is another reason why we risk moving away from whatever limited rule-based multilateral order we have to a world where resurgent states and powerful multinational corporations define the global agenda. But if that's all you said, it would be a mistake. That's certainly a tendency. But you can also find everywhere companies at the cutting edge of, for example, seeking to become low-carbon emitters. Companies are not just, as we are not as human beings, simply noble or wise or, or the opposite. There are a plethora of companies, some of which are actually at the forefront of certain kinds of institutional reforms. And we need to create incentive structures which allow the development of those forms of behavior. Hi. Uh, you're saying cosmopolitanism is a universal idea, and it seems you're talking about human rights quite a lot in that. However, that appears to be also like labelled as a Western idea, and you're saying Asian states and Gulf states prefer to keep their autonomy, and it looks like they'll get that as well as they become uh, more powerful in the future. So if they just say like universal human rights is a Western idea, then how do we sort of get around that when we mm. truly believe that it is a universal concept? Mm. Well, I think the principles on which democratic politics is based are essentially what I call cosmopolitan principles that affirm the equal moral worth of each and every human being, the centrality of active agency that the human beings can act in a diversity of ways and have choice, etc. The principles underpinning cosmopolitanism, I think, are essentially universal principles. But they have been enshrined in the modern period in certain democratic states and less so in others. International law, as I've suggested, has further elaborated these principles in vital ways because the idea, not just of human rights, but elements of international justice, makes no sense without appeal to these core principles. Are these simply Western ideas? Are they simply, um, is their value simply determined by their Western origins? I think the first thing I'd say about that is we need to distinguish the origins of ideas from their validity. The fact that certain sets of ideas had origins in the West certainly doesn't restrict their validity. Secondly, if, if philosophers such as Amartya Sen were here, he would be the first to argue these are not just Western principles. These are principles of much greater currency across the world, including in India. And thirdly, I would say that the project of cosmopolitanism and the deepening of cosmopolitanism touches a nerve in each and every culture. And I quoted in my lecture Bruce Ackerman, the American legal theorist, in his wonderful, elegant statement when he said, there's no society in the world without a woman who doesn't yearn for equal rights, no society where you can't find a man who seeks to throw off the yoke of deference, etc. In other words, 
These principles are principles of self-determination and the possibility of self-determination. And that is an aspiration shared across all cultures. How it develops and what historical conditions it develops is, of course, another question. So I maintain that these are universal principles, even though, of course, they meet fundamental opposition for many states today. Hi. Um, I'm curious to know where within the cosmopolitan order, uh, where and when the use of force would be justified. Well, yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> I think that um, if you look at the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq and Libya, you can see how quickly wars, the pursuit of war produces counterproductive results. Um, even in narrow geopolitical terms, the wars, these three wars, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya, have been counterproductive. In the case of Iraq, they've empowered other geopolitical actors that are more long-term threats to certain American interests than existed before. In the case of Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan has hastened the deterioration of Pakistan. In the case of Libya, you've created essentially a state of armed fighting groups. War very rarely is an instrument for the effective development of peace. There are very few wars that have successfully induced or engendered democracy and democratic development. War in the age of empire provides some examples. War 1945 provides additional examples in Germany and Japan. But those wars made a reasonable claim to totally vanquishing an enemy. In the wars of the contemporary period, the act of coercive force alone is not accepted by those on whom coercive force is inflicted. The age of imperial control is over. It's over for precisely the reasons that I've given, that the global normative resources, as it were, of self-determination, the appeal to autonomy, the demand for equal rights, and the pursuit of one's own life, free of domination, whether it's US powers or other such powers, has become a universal aspiration. So war cannot easily be translated any longer into effective, peaceful development. Does that mean that all wars, the war itself, are moribund? Well, I'm not a pacifist, for one. Secondly, it'd be hard to argue in 1939 that war was not somehow an essential means to protect the rule of law and the cultural democratic heritage of Europe. I think there are moments when war, as it were, is a necessary condition, a necessary instrument of politics. But the application of that instrument has to be used with far greater hesitation than it's ever been used since 1945. As I say, the history of warfare, and I've just given you three examples since 1945, is one not only of catastrophic human results, but even in their own narrow terms, geopolitical failure. There's a trajectory of international law that culminates in the principle of the responsibility to protect. That principle was appealed to in the Security Council Resolution 1973 to justify the intervention in Libya, to protect the peoples of Benghazi from the threat 
or what was perceived to be the threat of Gaddafi forces. The principle is a very good one. When people faced chronic life and death struggles for survival on a small scale, but particularly on a larger scale, then maybe there is a responsibility to protect the vulnerable and those who face devastation and loss of life. But the problem with this principle is who applies it under what circumstances. The Security Council is all too often the voice of dominant geopolitical powers who will pursue principles when it suits them and not pursue principles when it doesn't suit their interests. So the tricky thing here, it seems to me, is to accept that there are conditions when war is justified, when there are fundamental threats to the continuation of human life on a large scale. But the question is, who will make that judgment? Who will implement that judgment? And on what basis? At the moment, the Security Council is too weak a set of institutions to make for us to rely on the systematic application of the rule of law. Because the impartial application of the rule of law requires precisely that, the non-particular application of the rule of law. Yet the history of the Security Council is precisely the pursuit of particular agendas. So it seems to me you can only get the systematic application of international law and of this principle of responsibility to protect in a reformed Security Council, in a reformed UN system. Is that likely to happen? Not in the immediate future, of course. So my answer to your question is, there are cosmopolitan circumstances where war might be justified, when peoples face the threat of extinction or crimes against humanity. Under those circumstances, the mobilization of force to protect them seems a vital concern. And yet we have to be aware that the application of force in the context of geopolitics today often not only doesn't protect them, but can make things worse. The loss of life in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya has been colossal. So I suggest that we ask our politicians to be accountable for their actions. We set up a legal system that says, you claim war is justified under these circumstances, but if you go to war on grounds that are palpably false, if in the process you turn a state into a worse condition, and as a result, vast numbers of lives are lost, then you should somehow be accountable for that decision. I think there'd be many fewer wars. If democratic politicians were accountable for their decisions to a higher authority, i.e. the International Criminal Court. I'm happy to go on. Hi, thanks for that speech. It was uh, very, very I'm sorry uh, it was good. so croaky. <laughs> um, you mentioned the example of a person in Glasgow that belongs to four different or, or four overlapping political communities. Um, and you sort of implied almost that there's no reason that there shouldn't be a fifth one there. It's a, basically a cosmopolitan democracy. Um, I, I was just curious to see what you thought about the idea that in each of those communities that that person in Glasgow belongs to, it seems that the bigger the community is, the less that people on average tend to identify with it. Identification with all humanity is less strong than identification with the EU. Identification with, with the EU is less strong 
than uh, identification with individual member nations within the EU. And there's, there's theories in psychology which um, sort of support that, um, support this idea that people don't identify very well with large groups. So I'm just curious to see, uh, what do you think that, that says yeah. for your idea of a cosmopolitan democracy? That's, How do you deal with that? Yeah, that's a very important question, it seems to me. My response would be that people tend to identify with the institutions they know best, with the polities that they best understand and know. You have to remember that the idea that people identify with their states is a historical invention. There's nothing natural about the identity of national identity. While it's true that many states were developed on the basis of pre-national ethnic cores, nonetheless, the project of state development, of national state development, was by and large everywhere an elite creation in order to justify their power and the development of the state of statehood. You think of the development of the universal franchise. There was no democratic demos that we now seem to identify with in the 18th and late 18th century. The democratic demos, the national democratic demos, was invented in the slow struggle for the universal franchise. Up until 1939, there was no Europe to identify with. There were European states who had exploded onto the world in the late 16th century and carved it up in empire and colonies and then turned on themselves as these fragmented in the first half of the 20th century. And yet after 1945, something extraordinary happens. Europe turns from Hobbes to Kant and creates a Kantian Pacific Union in which the idea of war among European countries is at least ruled out almost inconceivable. So the idea of Europe and European citizenship gets created. But if we consider that it took hundreds of years to create national identities and national states, then the European project, for all its fragility, is not very old. Culture is slow to develop. We have to accept that. Cultural forms, we're creatures of cultural habitat, of our cultural habits and our habitats. The trouble is that the world, at some level, has gone global. There's been a shift in global power that we talked about in response to the earlier questions about, for example, multinational companies, and yet identities remain stubbornly local and rooted to territories. So that's the paradox, another paradox of our time. Power has shifted globally in many dimensions. Identity remains stubbornly local. It's in that space that the development of cosmopolitan ideas are fundamental. But as I try to argue, these ideas are already familiar to us. They're familiar to us in our democratic polities. But the idea that these ideas should only be cashed in in a national state is the invention of the period of the formation of states that tied the universal principles of citizenship to state boundaries. In an era where power has dislodged states, and escape the borders of states, the argument, my argument, is that these principles need to be re-entrenched. Of course they stay entrenched locally, sub-regionally, nationally, and super-regionally, but also globally. Are there signs that we can do that? To start where I, to go back to where I started, we've already done it. We've already done it in the universal constitutional stepping stones of the 20th century. We need to build on what's already there. We don't start from nowhere.
Thank you, David, for that scintillating lecture. Um, my question, I'd, I'd like to hear your views on the challenges that are facing the ICC at the moment as one of the instruments that is meant to drive uh, global um, cosmopolitanism, um, you know, human rights and justice. Now, on the one hand, <clears throat> we are celebrating its first uh, verdict. And, and one might say that that then, you know, means that its, its future has just started. But on the other hand, it's facing major questions about that particular future and the questions about legitimacy and, and meaning and purpose. Uh, thank you. Well, the ICC is another one of these international institutions that it seems to me was a victory in its development, but is, but is qualified in its practice by the refusal of some states to engage with the ICC and uh, to, to refuse to sign up to it. So what we risk at the moment is, again, a very important principle, the principles that are defended by the ICC, like the principle of the responsibility to protect and so on, but being applied partially in the interests only of some. And there's a real risk that the ICC becomes discredited because it's seen to be that court which brings to justice, let us say, rogue African leaders and doesn't bring to justice Western politicians who've engaged in wars that are in fact, as a result of the end, at the end of the day, wars that were fought on false grounds with huge loss of life and had disadvantageous consequences. Until the ICC is a place where all political leaders are held to account for crimes against humanity, the noble, the noble principles of the ICC will be sacrificed on the altar of leading sovereign state interests. Thanks, David. Uh, look, your comments about Afghanistan and Libya reminded me of a concern I've got. In some ways, we talk about the need to move beyond nation-state multilateralism, but if we turn the gaze the other way, we know that since 1945, a lot of nation formation resulted in the corralling of different cultural and ont you know, ontological differences into a nation-state. And so we see a breakup of nations, the idea of returning to some kind of pre-existing you know, cultural diversity, very deep. Deeper cultural, uh, deeper notion of cultural diversity than we think of in the West, mm. and of course the nation I know best is Sri Lanka, where uh, there are, you know the, the uh, sort of history of, of pluralism needs to be revived. Mm. And so I'm just wondering how this idea of um, a deeper form of almost ontological diversity fits with the individual moral worth, at yeah. the same time that the kind of pressures you're talking about are the nature of the scale of the global mm. challenges we've got. So the, the fragmentation of nations towards mm. deeper forms of cultural diversity. How does that fit with uh, the kind of imperatives? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, first, philosophically speaking, I think that pluralism and cosmopolitanism are the two sides of the same coin. Because what makes pluralism plural are limits to pluralism. That is to say, pluralism thrives on the recognition of the equal claims to plurality of each and every other person or each and every other group. So cosmopolitan principles, in my view, are the condition, are the apps, are the condition of the development and flourishing of pluralism. Now, it's very interesting that we face the fragmentation of states in a number of areas. Um, for example, the UK, the rise of Scotland, Wales, and so on. But one of the reasons, it seems to me, is subnational regions can flourish 
under certain circumstances today relates precisely to the arguments that I'm making. States splice together the rule of law, forms of accountability, in territorially given units. The basis of those territories was often, in a sense, geographically, and from an ethnic point of view, contingent on power, conquest, and so on. So many of the countries of Africa, and even some of the countries of Europe, of course, were designed by virtue of the fact where territories were embedded entirely as a result of conquest. In an era in which law can be guaranteed, market flourishing, the rules of the market, human rights, and other conditions can be guaranteed by non-state actors, then it becomes possible for subnational entities to flourish in development because they can take advantage of those legal structures without being bound by the nation state. So what you get in the European community is precisely the diffusion of power down as well as up. Why is it possible for Catalonia to become increasingly independent or Wales and Scotland to enjoy greater independence? They can envisage it precisely because they don't need the UK any longer to guarantee rules of tr uh, trade rules, human rights, and so on and so forth, because there's a larger entity, the European legal entity, that they can engage with that supplies some of those vital public goods that were once solely provided by the state. So in my view, this structure we see in Europe developed further globally is at the one and the same time a structure that underpins the possibility of self-determination, but no longer assumes that self-determination requires old state structures to be the central and sole unit. Um, I suppose that's what I would say. Um, thanks, David. I'm responding to your idea. Your, uh, you're saying that um, one of the one of the things that has shifted change towards cosmopolitanism from the kind of club of the 1945 club is the change in the global market. And I guess I'm wondering for cultures that don't kind of seem to make the transition to capitalism so well, in Australia we have indigenous peoples and there sort of seems to be an argument at the policy level, should we be trying to uh, bring uh, Aboriginal communities into a, a liberal economic market or do we try and recognise them as a different kind of a culture. So I'm wondering, what, what would you say is the, is the kind of ideas within cosmopolitanism, how do you respond to, to cultures that don't fit in our market, in our economic system so well? Well, first of all, I think that all indigenous cultures are inherently cosmopolitan. That is to say, all cultures are formed within and against other cultures. So if you go to and trace out the origins of certain what seem to be isolated communities in, let's say, Africa or Latin America in, um, in tropical rainforests, you find that these communities themselves are the product of trade routes, of engagements, of patterns of conflict. Over time, there is no primal indigenous essence, as it were. Identity cultural identity, whether it's those of indigenous peoples or those of migrants who move into other cultures, is constantly contested and negotiated. I think in the age in which we live, global communications infrastructures essentially mean that this fluidity of identity will become more common. 
In Kenya, for example, a friend of mine who's an anthropologist, when she went there 20, 25 years ago, isolated herds of people would be fairly isolated. Today they can be herding goats and sheep and you suddenly get a mobile phone ringing and out from underneath their clothes comes a mobile phone that connects them as never before. The crucial aspect of cosmopolitanism, it seems to me, in this regard is to ensure that plurality of identities can flourish, but identities in such a way flourish in such a way that they don't provide coercive solutions to others. Because the condition of pluralism, as I say, is the condition of just pluralism or democratic pluralism, as it were, is to ensure that groups can flourish and develop without coercing others to adopt their own lifestyles and their own solutions, as it were. So pluralism in its very essence depends on the equal recognition of others and the equal recognition of other groups to, to develop as they so wish. So there is no single cosmopolitan solution to the question of the development of indigenous identities in, in Canada you know, uh, or Australia. This has to be subject to a national debate and a national discussion. Uh, but I think within a cosmopolitan framework, the respect for local cultures is somehow easier to generate than it is often in other uh, uh, philosophical positions, precisely because cosmopolitan begins from the premise that our worldviews will inevitably conflict, that each and every person and each and every group are likely to have views and values that conflict with others. So disagreement with others is the hermeneutic norm, is the interpretive norm, but the question then arises, how do you live with disagreement? How do you live with diversity? How do you guarantee diversity? And such diversity can flourish without coercion. And cosmopolitan principles are exactly the attempt to circumscribe, as I say, the beginnings or the, the basis of pluralism. One more at the back. Thank you very much. Um, I just have one question in relation to cosmopolitanism and its uh, perceived threat to the diversity of language, especially in a country like Australia. We live in a multicultural country which is persistently monolinguistic. Um, we see in Australia the concept of national security being broadened and deepened significantly because of the impacts of globalisation, also since 9-11. Um, the issue there is that while there is a global push for the learning of English by, in, the, in the East, and we have a lot of overseas students here <laughs> studying, as, as you've already pointed out, um, what their, therefore, what um, prospect is there for a country like Australia to maintain its level of linguistic uh, diversity in the face of uh, cosmopolitanism? Well, if you go to... Los Angeles, you find that Los Angeles is at one and the same time the center of the global culture industry, the film industry, and at the same time many of those same technologies allow ethnic groups to organize themselves better than ever before. The same breakthroughs in IT and satellite communication and the computer revolution and so on and so forth allow one and the same time those technologies to be used to shape huge global flows, the Hollywood film industry, Bollywood, and so on and so forth. But the same technologies, because they get cheaper and cheaper, can be used by ethnic groups and ethnic identity, particular ethnic groups, 
and religious groups to organize themselves and to integrate themselves perhaps better than ever before. So Los Angeles is the place of the Hollywood industry, but it's also the place with the highest density of local television stations, radio stations, newspapers, newsletters, which allow a great diversity of Hispanic and other kinds of identities to flourish. So, um, in response to your question, the huge technological shifts of the contemporary era, global communication infrastructures, it seems to me on one and the same time, the condition of the flourishing of identity and diverse identities, locally and globally, because they can connect as never before. At the same time, it becomes possible to create common pathways of communications in a country like Australia. I mean, the common pathways that we have left are very few. They are certain national political traditions. They are the sharing of certain soap operas. When you go to work, people say, did you see yesterday the episode of X, Y, and Z? No matter what your ethnic identity, you may have watched the same television program. In the UK now, um, uh, uh, there's a program called Strictly Come Dancing, which over 20 million people watch every Saturday night and talk about at work almost endlessly. And I also run a company, a small publishing company, and as soon as it's lunch break, everybody's replaying Strictly Come Dancing, and it provides certain common themes of discourse, as it were. So I think the challenge for Australia is to take advantage of global communication infrastructures, which allow the deepening of particular identities at the same time as they allow for wider global engagement. It seems to me the problem for Australia has traditionally been that it doesn't have a strong enough, defiant enough conception of its own national origins. And so, for example, and recently it seems to me, you fought a number of very dubious wars which were not necessarily part of your patch. You fought those wars as part of a seeming national, international uh, 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 consensus, uh, uh, international coalition of the willing, as it were, that's dragged Australia into a number of wars which only marginally related to your communities and your national interests. So I would like to see, as it were, a more robust Australia that stands on its own feet and becomes a leader of global opinion, and not as it has been in part a recipient of certain global trends. Again, apologies for my voice. So to finish proceedings this evening and to formally close uh, this event, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Professor David Haywood, uh, who will make some closing remarks. Professor David Haywood is the Dean of the School of Global Studies, Social Science and Planning, and since 2007 he's been a member of the Board of Directors of Melbourne Health and is a Chair of the Finance Committee. He's a life member of the Victorian Council of Social Service in recognition of three de decades of policy advice, education and training for the Victorian non-for-profit sector. David's research interests are in the, field of, uh, in the fields of urban policy and service provision with a focus on state governments and housing. Thank you, David. Thank you, Damien. Um, thank you, uh, David. That was an excellent talk. Um, 
Last year I had the pleasure in December of travelling to uh, the UK and then to the Netherlands for a short period of time and it's difficult for those on the left not to see the current period as a time of great pessimism. <clears throat> Here, despite great wealth, uh, we have trouble implementing something like a mining tax that's designed to redistribute wealth for the nation's future. Um, in Europe, uh, at the moment, most of the countries in Europe are implementing austerity programs that are extraordinarily severe in their magnitude. The British government has just announced in its latest budget uh, cutbacks on a scale that exceed anything that Margaret Thatcher did. Uh, in the budget that was released just a few days ago, the government introduced a remarkable reform which consisted of winding back a 50% per, 50, uh, tax rate charged on the wealthiest people in the United Kingdom at the same time as imposing new austerity measures on the very poor. 82% of the austerity measures uh, will be um, implemented over the next five years, so they haven't finished yet. If you travel around the world, it's difficult not to be pessimistic if you see what's happening in the United States. Um, it's difficult not to be pessimistic when you have a look at some of the um, candidates for the uh, presidency. I think the thing that I find most enthralling about David's um, speech tonight and his work in general about cosmopolitanism is that it is quite uncharacteristic of much of the literature that I see in that it is infused with hope. Um, it's infused with hope bound up with concepts which should be central to all of us around human rights, around citizenship and a better global future for us all. And I think it's in that spirit that I'd like to commend you for your lecture and to thank you for those thoughts. Um, it was a really enjoyable evening. Thank you very much indeed.